Good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. Merry Christmas to you all. Um, you may be wondering, whose bright idea was it to leave the kids in the service? Well, uh, we were going to rent some animals and let them wander around so you could have a full manger experience, but uh, we didn't have the, the funds or the time. So we just went with the kids. So um, it is a, a, to me, it is a blessing to hear them from time to time and them, for them to be certainly amongst us. Uh, and to be able to get a sense of what it is we adults do while they are back in their rooms. And so I hope that uh, it won't cause you to give someone the skunk eye. Uh, if a child makes some noise, the sound of noise is a good thing, right? That's life. And so um, we, uh, we, we will get through it together this morning. I see some people fanning themselves. I, you know, it is 70 degrees outside, so I don't know if they adjusted the temperature inside. This is not to try to to get you to uh, have some sort of quasi-hell experience. So <laughs> overall, we, we, we do, in fact, care about the fact that it's, uh, it is Christmas. But anyway, all that aside, um, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 21 this morning as we continue our journey through Advent. Um, just want to remind you of a couple of things to kind of make sure catch us up to where we are. Remember, Luke in particular likes focusing on individuals as part of the redemptive story. He's unique in his gospel in this regard in that he focuses on people with names. Now, we don't get the shepherds' names, but we're going to see how they play a part in redemptive history. And if you remember, Luke likes pointing out the people who don't really probably belong, it would seem, as most religious people would think, that these are not the kind of people you would choose to tell the story to or have them tell the story to others. And just to uh, recap, remember the first people in the story are Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you, you may be thinking, yeah, but they were, they were blameless and righteous, but what else were they? They were barren. Now, some of you know exactly how hard that is. If you've experienced barrenness, you know how it feels to wonder why you know what it's like to also have everyone around you seem to blink and be able to get pregnant and be able to celebrate life you know the weight of that because you you wonder what what did i do wrong why why am i being chosen for this and you, you got to remember he was a he was a priest and you also got to remember in their culture to be barren was in essence some sort of perceived judgment so Zechariah and Elizabeth are an interesting choice to begin the story, plus they're, they're older. They're kind of in the Abrahamic lineage in that they were way older and thought it was over. Remember, Zechariah, though he's a priest in the great lineage of the priesthood, he doubted. So it was a, a messy group of people from the start, right? And then the next people that are, get involved are a 12 to 14-year-old girl. Which again, I don't know if you know how churches handle teenage pregnancy these days. It's, it's, it's not, it wasn't good then either because hers was out of wedlock. She was betrothed, but it didn't seem to be from her husband. And if it had been, they'd have both, it had both been punishable by death. So, so far, what we've seen is that Luke chooses, or actually God chooses, and Luke just tells their stories, some folks that we would not exactly, if we were writing the story, this isn't where we would start. And where we're going to find ourselves is further into that story that all of heaven is going to break out in a worship service for a group of people that you and I probably wouldn't want to spend a whole lot of time with. Um, and so what we see again and again is that God comes to those at the margin. And this is pretty consistent, right? Remember what, it, what Jesus said. Who did he come for? Did he come to make sure that the righteous 
were so excited about their righteousness to make sure to give them their gold star or their scepter or their crown or whatever it is. Is that, what, is that who he comes for? No, he comes for those who need a physician, those who know they are sick and know that they need so desperately Jesus. And we would do well to remember this. I think some of us, after we, we have admitted, yes, I'm sick and in need of a Savior, something flips within us that makes us self-righteous. Something flips within us that makes us forget where we've come from and make sure that we want to stay further out ahead of the pack because we don't want to be around people like that. And so the Christmas story reminds us exactly who we are, exactly who God is, how good He is, which is why we have uh, so much of the humiliation story in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Jesus comes to very, very lowly circumstances. And we're going to see even more of that. That where he's born is not exactly exciting and the circumstances are not exactly clean and the whole thing is just rather messy. And we would do well to remember that that, in some measure, ought to be kind of what the church looks like. We ought to have room for people's messiness. And that starts with me too, by the way. Right? I mean, it starts certainly from the top down. If, I, if I'm not willing to work... With people's messiness, you're not going to be either. And if you're not willing to work with my messiness sometimes, this is going to be a short relationship. So, uh, as we turn into the text, I have a question for you. What have you anticipated with great joy? What in your life did you anticipate with such great joy? Was it your wedding day? Was it, your, was it graduating from college? Was it graduating from high school? Was it graduating from pre-K maybe? That looks pretty exciting. Was it, was it having your first child? Having your third child? Was it, was it seeing someone you hadn't seen in a long, long time? Was it getting the job that you so longed for? Was it getting out of the job that you didn't long for? What have you anticipated with great joy and why? And even more, at this juncture in your life, what do you anticipate with great joy? Because Christ is coming again to make all things new. And between the now and the not yet, he's also not interested in just leaving things as they are and being like, hey, you guys just hang out till I come back. Nothing's really going to change much. In fact, it's just going to get a whole lot worse. Or can we actually have joy between the now and the not yet because we know that he is always at redemptive work? Even when we've grown faint, even when we've given up, even when we've quit, even when we've burned the bridge that we crossed. Do you know that he continues to build? He continues to orchestrate. He continues to long for redemption and reconciliation for us all. So, are you anticipating that? Those kinds of things, both now and then, with great joy. Because his first coming signals that his second coming is imminent. All right, if you would, turn with me to the text, and let's look at Luke verses 2, 1 through 7. This is going to be Caesar Augustus' decree in the service of God's sovereign timing. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, 
which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. So I'm going to flip real quick to Micah chapter 5, and I just want to read this for you. It was written about 700 years before this comes to pass. Um, and so just listen at what, what the prophet Micah says. This is uh, Micah 5, verses 1 through 4. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name the Lord his God. And they shall dwell, dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now think about that for a second. That was written 700 years. We know this is a fact. 700 years before this event takes place. So all of this has meaning. Now it's interesting, if you know anything about Caesar Augustus, his real name is Octavian, and anytime there was an inscription about him, it would say, Octavian or Caesar Augustus, the Savior of the world. Now why in the world do you think that God would send Jesus during the time and according to the decree of the man who thinks himself to be the savior of the world. See, I love the fact that nothing is lost on God. He is, uh, he is perfect in every aspect, right? That he would send the actual savior of the world during the reign of the guy who thinks he's the savior of the world. The man who thinks that his decree, and the reason he did the decree, just so you know, Taxation is not a modern construct. It's been going on for a long, long time. And so the whole reason he wants to register the entirety of his kingdom is because he wants to make sure he's getting all his money. And so he issues a decree in the perfectness of God's sovereign timing. This man who thinks himself the savior of the world, all he's done is paved the way for the savior of the world. And according to Micah, he is to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And he is to come from meager means. He is not to be born in any city that we probably would have picked. If you know anything about Bethlehem, it wasn't large at all. In fact, it was probably just a few hundred people, if that many. And so it, it was not any major city. It was not any means for a king to come from, and yet it is what the Lord chose. And in his timing, that is when he came. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about God's timing, and I think this is important for us to hear because if you're like me, you're phenomenally patient. In fact, you're so patient they should write books about your patience. No, that's probably not true of you either. It's definitely not true of me, as anybody who knows me can tell you. I am not the most patient. However, God is, and praise Him that He is patient with us because how many of you, in your being redeemed, are already perfect and God can move on to someone else. Show of hands. I want to know who you are because I want to talk to you. I, I need to find some tips. 
Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. Let us ever rest our souls on the thought that times are in God's hand. Now, is that comforting to any of you who look at the world, even your own local circumstance, much less if you read anything about Aleppo, if you read anything about what's going on across the world in Turkey and Russia and any of these other places, much less the list of churches that were given for ISIS to attack on Sundays and showed them how to do it so they could do you know, maximum damage, all that stuff. If that's kind of haunting in your mind, this should be comforting to you. Much less job situation, house situation, family situation, all the locality stuff that we're wondering, God, where are you? And where are you at work in this? J.C. Rowell says, let us ever rest our souls on the thought that times are in God's hand. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new light to the world. Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us as if we knew better than the King of Kings what time relief should come. Would that we could be patient and trust in God's timing after he has shown over thousands of years how he is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. That we could rest in that and love each other better and not grow so anxious and turn on each other and, and go after each other and be so worked up about things that you can't do anything about anyway. So what are some ways in which God's timing has been different than your own? That's a question worth thinking about, right? Many of us would admit, I don't, in fact, as I've tried to think about it, I can't think of a single solitary time that he and I were on the same page timing-wise. But the better question is next, how did it turn out according to his timing? Now, I can confess to you that the, all the times that I was clearly out of phase with God's timing and he was patient with me and came through when he did, it always turned out better than anything I could have made happen at the time I thought it should have happened. In fact, the few times he's been gracious enough to let me get my way was just to show me how bad an idea it is for me to get my way. And so even in his grace, I didn't have the final say. So, so what we see straight away in this part of the gospel story is that God's timing is perfect. Remember that. Rest in that, as J.C. Ryle calls us to do. If you would turn back to the text, let's look at Luke 2, 8 through 15. Good news of great joy pronounced to the lowly and the poor. <clears throat> and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, the story shifts to another group of people who are low on the social scale. Now, Scholars have kind of gone back and forth as to how low shepherds really are, but most of them agree that lepers, shepherds, somewhere in that category. 
Part of the reason that shepherds would have been low on the totem pole is, one, they hung out outside all the time and they stunk and they were people of the outdoors and they, they were probably rough and tumble. And so they would have had to have been because they had to fight off lions and they had to fight off bears to protect, they had to fight off thieves, marauders, all these kinds of things. And so if you lived outside for a long, long time, you'd toughen up too, I bet. And you'd smell different. And so these folks were oftentimes uh, seen as very low on the class scale. And what's beautiful is that the Lord comes to them. Now, if you were writing the redemptive story and you wanted to have maximum impact, think about it, who would you go to? Right? Wouldn't, you want, wouldn't you want to have a king have this vision? Wouldn't you want to go straight to Caesar Augustus and say, Caesar, uh, I, I get that you think you're the savior of the world, but let's, let's rip the sky open and have this giant heavenly party and freak you out and see what that does for you. But he doesn't do that, Right? You also would think maybe to the hardened-hearted church is who, to whom he should go. Right? All those, all those Jewish folks who had since given up on the coming Messiah, all those folks who had just kind of going through the motions. Does this sound familiar at all? You'd rip the sky open maybe in one of their services just to say, hey, how much impact could you have if you just rip the sky open in the middle of a church service and at long last showed the people, but he doesn't do that either. Instead, he chooses to go way out in the sticks somewhere, which was in the same region where the baby was, the king had been born, and chooses instead to come to this group of men who are of low education, low on the economic scale, and yet notice how quickly they respond. These people at the margins who knew they had nothing and knew exactly who they were, and we're so excited to see uh, and hear and, and to have pronounced to them peace on earth and goodwill to men. This thing is happening. And notice, they, they tremble in fear. They recognize something as is, something is, is powerful is happening. When's the last time you trembled in fear? When's the last time before the Lord you had anything move you in any way, shape, or form that caused you to maybe bow even just a little bit. And yet these men are bowed low, not just out of total fear, but also once they hear the message, there's excitement. They want to see this. I love the way they say it. We need to go see this thing, this thing that's happening. They recognize it wasn't just a baby. This was an entire change in everything. Everything was turning upside down. Remember how Luke is very fascinated with the upside-down nature of the kingdom. How upside-down is this? These smelly, outdoorsy, probably rough and tumble, maybe slightly vulgar at times. I know that's hard to believe God likes slightly vulgar people, um, but he does. Now, should they continue in their vulgarity? No, calm down. But he does. He comes to those who are at the margins. And listen to what Philip Graham Ryken says. I love this quote, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in it because I think, we, I think we're off on this. Shepherds were despised. With the exception of lepers, they were the lowest class of men in Israel, yet these were the men God wanted to hear the gospel, working class sinners. Like everything else about the birth of Christ, this upsets our expectations. We tend to think that God is for the good people. 
when in fact he is for the needy sinners who are in desperate need of grace. Some of us, and I will include myself in this, we need to repent of this idea that we think that God is only for the good people. We need to repent of this idea that it is not lowly sinners and broken people and folks who don't quite fit all into our boxes and categories. We need to remember that we need We need to remember who we are and stop thinking that we are the good people. No, we're not. I can guarantee you you're not. And we need to recognize how deep is our need. And maybe, just maybe, in recognizing the depth of our need, we might actually begin to see some glory. We might actually begin to see where God is at work instead of being so caught up in how good we are. So caught up in how far we've come. So caught up in how much better we are than those people. We would do well to remember that he is for needy sinners who are in desperate need of grace. And that's us. That's all of us. And we would do well in so doing because then we could love each other a whole lot better because we all need the same thing. We're all beggars in search of the same thing even if we don't quite live up to each other's perceptions of who and what we should be. Instead, what we should do is look to Jesus, who far exceeds our expectations, who far exceeds anything that we could ever be or become in our own strength, and trust him to do what it is he, in fact, said he would do, which is come to heal those who knew they needed a physician. So what are some ways in which the coming of Christ has brought you great joy and peace? As it did these men who desperately needed it, who felt so marginalized and so lost in all these things. How has God's coming brought you great joy and peace? And let me go you one better. There is a sense in which this should grow every year. And so you need to do some hard assessment and ask, has my peace and my joy grown over the last year? And if it hasn't, you need to examine the why. Because God is faithful. He didn't give up on you. Maybe it's you lost sight of Him. There is so much to this. And again, I've got a seminary degree. I've studied the Greek and the Hebrew. I, I should be as bored with the Bible more so than any of you. Right? But I am, it, it, it blows me away afresh. All the time. I've been reading the book of Revelation. Don't get excited. Uh, I've studied it a lot over the last, and it has been so rich and so deep and so beautiful. The end of the story is so much more beautiful than we have recognized. I'll study the Psalms of the next year, and I'm so excited about that, I can't wait to get started. Because I know what it's going to do to my soul. As Calvin says, this, the Psalms are what are the anatomy of the soul. It gives the soul shape. I can't wait for January 1 so I can start. I'm pretty you know, perfectionistic about that. Go ahead and start. Who cares? No, I'm not finished with Revelation yet. But I, I'm, I'm, and my wife can tell you, there are times when it's, and again, it's going to freak some of y'all out, but it's okay. I, I don't care. There's times I teeter because as I look at the church, I don't see a whole lot changing. I, I read Charles Templeton's Farewell to God a long time ago, and Charles Templeton was one of the foremost preachers in our country. He and Billy Graham came up at the same time. In fact, Billy was the evangelist. Charles Templeton was the man of God, the Pauline-like person. And you know what he said? 
He said he just, as he preached and did, and everybody was so excited about what he could do, nobody actually seemed to get excited about Jesus. And nobody actually seemed to be changed by anything. And so he went to Oxford to study science because he saw science changing the world far more than the gospel. What an indictment. Now, you may say, well, that's Charles's fault. Mm, not in toto. It's not. And when we don't change, we actually do discourage one another in a way that you cannot, you, you cannot account for. We have no idea how our lack of growth and our lack of community and our lack of caring about these things and our lack of ability to forgive one another and our lack of ability to even speak to one another about things is so phenomenally discouraging to the people around us. And yet we smile and kind of yeoman, you know, seven dwarves right along. I don't want to do that. And there are times where I, I teeter, and yet it's always, always, always Jesus and the gospel that keeps me from falling over and the beauty of God's word that keeps me from sinking all the way into the abyss. It should be true for you too. As we sang, while shepherds watched their flocks by night, I was, why am I moved by that song? I don't know, I just was. And I long to see people's lives transformed, and I am, that is the part of me that is the shepherd, that is in consistent phase with Jesus. He, he didn't do all this so that we could wear him like a scarf or use him only like a bulletproof vest when we need him, but instead that it would change the whole of our lives and the whole of our existence. And I know that what I'm saying is scary, and I know that what I'm saying is weighty, and I know that it requires a lot. But he died on a cross. He bore the totality of your sin. Now that's a lot. A lot more than you'll ever have to do. And would that we would be a people who show joy and, and actually give the world something worth being drawn to instead of them going, yeah, I've seen all this before. This story's been writ large a number of times. Would that we would have the same joy and awe that the shepherds do as if the sky had been ripped open and a party broke out in heaven. And would that we could love each other in a fashion that recognizes that the gospel is not just for good people. If you would turn back to the text, verses 15 through 21. When the angels went away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days, when, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Notice the shepherds immediately go. They don't waste any time. How often do we not immediately go? How often are we, 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 know, where the, we know where the banquet is. You know where Jesus is to be found and yet we tarry or we scoff or we, we, we act like we're being asked to do some drudgery and yet the shepherds, these lowly men, men who didn't seem good enough for any of us, they go with great haste. And they not only go, but they tell everybody they run into. Can you imagine? 
these smelly, kind of like broken, people would have thought, man, these guys, they're bipolar, they haven't taken their medication, there's some sort of van somewhere that dropped them off, clearly something odd is going on. No, they shared this with everybody that they ran into, and they could not contain their joy that the Christ child could be found and seen and was tangible and incarnate, right? So Mary overhears this, and think about her. She's, how old is she by now? <laughs> Only nine months older than when we first ran into her. So she's still within her teen years, and yet she ponders all of this in her heart. She stores it up, and it's, the, the Greek word there says that it's, it's so much deeper than just kind of considering lightly. It means that she cultivated her understanding of it. She went deep into it. It became part of her. Is the gospel becoming part of you? Or is it still just some sort of external thing that's just a part of the total tapestry of your life? Or has it infiltrated all that you are and is affecting everything? It should. If it doesn't, I don't know what gospel you're thinking of. And so she considers it deep in her heart. They celebrate. They're so excited and there's praise and there's joy and they go back just celebrating. Can't wait for the day when we'll have the opportunity to do that and we can see everything as it ought finally be seen. I'm tired of this glass half darkly stuff. Now, what causes you to praise and worship? What, what, what sparks you to treasure things up and ponder them in your heart? Really, like, think about this. What is it that makes you pause and really consider something deeply? Was it the election? I hope not. Is it world politics? What, what is it? What is it that causes you to stop and really dig deep into something? And if it's not the thing that is going to change the world at long last, then what are you wasting your time on? How is it we don't have time for this? How is it they had time for it? What sparks you to treasure up and ponder these things in your heart shows you where your heart is. Right? Remember what Jesus said as he gets older. He says, that which you treasure up in your heart, that which you consider deeply, that which moves you, that is what you are. What you say matters not. What matters is what is evident of the treasure of your heart. So where are you storing these things up? As Mary teaches us yet again where we ought to. Luke 2, 1 through 21 teaches us three things. The decrees of man are in submission to God's sovereign timing. Two, the good news is intended for the lowly and the poor in spirit. It ain't just for good folks. And it ain't just for good folks who were once not good folks who now think they're good folks. Three, Jesus Christ should be shared, worshipped, and contemplated deep in our hearts. This story should move us. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes says as we close out this portion of the Advent season. We do have one more week. Uh, we will hear uh, the last story of Advent for us will be next week. But for now, listen to this. No child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. 
We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins. With a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Let me read that again. This is where Christianity always begins. It begins with a sense of need, a graced, listen, graced, what does that mean? means you don't come up with your own insufficiency. You are graced to see it. It's actually a gift for you to recognize your insufficiency. But their graced sense of one's insufficiency, Christ himself setting the example, comes to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. So critical to this Advent season is not the light, not the presence, it's not family. It's not the best peanut brittle you've ever put in your mouth or peppermint bark. It is whether or not you recognize your need for the king who came as a babe in a manger to lowly means and lowly people like us. More important than anything else is for you to consider the gift that was given to you, which is your knowledge of your insufficiency. That sounds terrible. What a terrible Christmas message. <laughs> right? But, but it's true, right? That seems like, man, what, what got in his bonnet? Well, the gospel. And so we need to recognize our insufficiency and our need for Jesus because otherwise this is just pomp and circumstance, sound and fury signifying absolutely nothing. So may we be moved like these lowly shepherds to want to praise and to worship May we, like Mary, want to contemplate deep in our heart the truth of this gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us our insufficiency, and thank you for letting us live through it, and thank you for even better redeeming us from it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are not too far. Not even in our self-righteousness are we too far. God, you love, you love us who are self-righteous too, but you have harder things to say to us so that we would be broken and recognize our insufficiency. Would you grace us with our insufficiency, Lord? Would you show us our need for you this day and the need for your church and the need for the means of grace and the need for community and the need for honesty and the need for the plank in our own eye to be removed before we go after the speck in someone else's eye? Would you be so kind in your spirit to show each and every one of us here today of our deep need for this baby king who came born under lowly and humiliating circumstances and who died under lowly and humiliating circumstances but rose a king to sit at the right hand of the Father because his work was accepted and complete and finished, who will rise only to return again to receive that which was given to him by the Father to make all things new. God, give us hope. Give us peace, as you promised. In Christ's name. Amen.